Thank you, Austin. As Austin alluded to, we are, we, we have been in the process over the last six months or so of exploring um, options for expanding our current facilities to uh, make more space in the sanctuary, but also uh, really where the, the great need is with our children's classes. Um, and so we are in the process of that. There are potentially some big changes coming up in the near future, which we will continue to roll out details as um, they are made available. So, but just so you aware that are aware, uh, if you are a member and we're at the annual business meeting um, th this past February, you're aware of some of this uh, process that is in the works. Um, if you weren't at that, um, th there will be more information to come. But wanted to, to give some additional information on that. So we've just read, Austin has just read through the first few verses of our scripture reading today from John chapter 20. We're going to pick this story up again in a moment. Uh, you, you know, some of my favorite stories in the Gospels, and perhaps some of the most neglected or forgotten stories in the Gospels are the few that we find tucked away right at the end of each of the Gospels, which I guess makes sense to a certain degree because what, what else needs to be said after the resurrection of Jesus Christ? As we discussed last week, in his death and resurrection, Christ achieves victory over the powers of sin and evil, and so that's sort of the end of the story, right? Christ achieves victory. It is a once and for all victory, and of story. I mean, how do you follow that up? So naturally, anything that follows in this story is going to be heard with less and less clarity or less and less emphasis. And maybe it would be helpful to think of it in this way. If, if you've ever received life-changing news, you probably understand this phenomenon at a different level. As soon as you hear that piece of life-altering information, whether that is good or bad, all of the details that follow in the conversation just seem like a blur because your mind is stuck on that one critical piece of information that is going to change your life, and you can't really process any of the other information until much later. I think there's a little bit of that going on when it comes to the Easter story. Is anything going to be heard or understood after we talk about the resurrection of Christ? If we've read the pinnacle of the story, I mean, we can sort of just breeze past the rest of it. What else is there to consider? Except in this case, in the case of the Gospels, it's not the end of the story that the Gospel authors are telling us. And I think that's to our benefit because we actually find some incredible stories, though unimpressive on the surface, admittedly, but we find some stories that teach us something incredible about following the risen Christ. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to explore a couple of these stories. The first one we find here today in John chapter 20. Today's gospel text, Austin just read the beginning of that text, and it is Christ's version of, or, or, I'm sorry, John's version of Christ's commissioning of his disciples, where Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. So we're going to pick it up where Austin left off, beginning to read in verse 24, where we read this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. 
So we get a clue right here from the beginning that something seems to be amiss, that something is going to be going on as the story develops involving this man named Thomas. He is not with the other disciples during their encounter with Jesus when Jesus commissions them to go just as he has. So when Thomas shows up, of course, the first conversation piece is going to be this, verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So you can sort of feel some of this tension beginning to build between Thomas and the other disciples. The other disciples seem to be so excited. They're, they're thrilled to inform Thomas about this incredible Development. I can almost picture the disciples jockeying for position to have the honor to be the one to share this great news. And it's as though they're climbing all over one another to go in for the big reveal. Thomas, you're never going to believe it, but we have seen the Lord. He lives. Yes, we know he was killed, but he is alive. Thomas responds, well, you're right on one count, and that is that I will never believe it. Are you delusional? Is this your response to this trauma that you have experienced? I might believe it if I had some proof. If I could touch his nail-scarred hands or if I could touch his side. But, but I need something objective. I need something testable, evidence that I can sort of feel or look at with my own senses. Without that proof, there's just no way that I can buy into this. I'm going to go out on a limb this morning and guess that there are some in this room who have felt that impulse. And it's actually not going out on a limb because I know for a fact there are, because one of them is standing right up here even now. I wanted to believe, I want to believe I just have all of these questions, and I've got doubts about these issues and uncertainty surrounding these issues of faith, and how can I possibly be a faithful follower of Jesus when I wrestle with doubt? So maybe this faith thing isn't for me after all, because I just can't reach this place of certainty. Jesus, I want, I want to believe I want to trust, but you're going to have to make yourself real to me. I need something undeniable. I need something I can't ignore. Because right now I have a very difficult time trying to navigate or, or reconcile these persistent doubts that I have or these questions over here with my desire to have faith and my desire to be a faithful follower of Jesus. How can I exist in that place of tension? These are some of the questions I want to explore this morning. Like what Austin Fisher said, a pastor in Texas, he said, doubt is only a problem if certainty is the expectation. And I think a lot of times, even for people of faith, certainty is the expectation we have. So anytime that certitude begins to shift a little bit, well, we can't possibly be a person of faith. 
because we don't have certainty. Let's continue reading. John chapter 20, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So eight days later, we are told that once again, the disciples have gathered, only this time Thomas is present. Jesus appears on the scene, speaks peace over his disciples, and then he turns his attention and addresses Thomas personally and reveals that he is aware of the difficult time Thomas is having, accepting all that has transpired. He meets Thomas where he is, in that place of uncertainty. Put your finger on my hand. Touch my side. Believe in the impossible, Thomas. Now, as we read some of these post-resurrection accounts from the Gospels where Jesus, resurrected body and all, appears to his followers and meets with them and spends a little bit of time teaching them, even shares a meal with them, which we're going to explore in more detail next week. And then, of course, he sends them out. In these post-resurrection accounts, there are a couple of fairly shocking details or things about this post-resurrection reality. First of all, I find it quite interesting that Jesus, who throughout his ministry attracted throngs and throngs of people, he healed the multitudes, miraculously fed thousands upon thousands. But his post-resurrection appearances are rather understated, maybe even a little bit mundane, if not concealed from the general public to a certain degree. He isn't appearing to the multitudes, confirming his resurrection beyond a shadow of a doubt, which leads to another very fascinating feature of these post-resurrection appearances, and that is the presence of doubt. The presence of doubt. We see that, of course, famously in Thomas, but I don't think it's just Thomas. What we see, even in the early apostles who have spent a few years with Jesus, living with him, walking by his side, staking their very lives on the truth of his message, and yet even they have a difficult time believing. And why wouldn't they? I mean, this claim that Jesus has come back from death, it goes against everything they know about the natural world. Dead people don't come back to life. So we think specifically of Thomas in the story that John is telling us a a man that I think is unfairly gets a bad reputation because of his lack of immediate and enthusiastic cognitive belief, but he is a man like any other. 
A man who understandably has a difficult time believing the unbelievable. A man who struggles to see beyond the world as he knows it, as we all do. And it isn't until he touches the scars in the hands of Jesus, touches the side of Jesus, that he can genuinely declare his trust in the resurrected Lord. And when he does, Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe, Thomas. Thomas responds, my God, it is you. My Lord and my God. Thomas sees, he touches, and then he is moved to this place of belief. And Jesus responds, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who believe even without the luxury of perceiving this reality with their physical senses of sight and touch. So Thomas sees in the story, John tells us, and then believes, but What about those who see and still struggle to wrap their minds around this great miracle? And I actually think we find an example of this in the story in Matthew chapter 28, Matthew's version of this great commission, which is arguably the more prominent, it is the more well-known commissioning of the disciples. We'll begin reading it in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we read the first part of this chapter last week, Matthew's resurrection story, where the angel appears to the women who discover the tomb and tell them to go and instruct the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee. And when the disciples listen to this instruction and Go to Galilee to meet Jesus. This is what happens. They encounter him on a mountain there. And when they are there with Jesus, Matthew says they worship and they doubt. They worship, Matthew says, but some were still not sure about what they were seeing. And I don't think this has to be understood as a sort of clean line of demarcation between the believing and super faith-filled apostles over here and, of course, faithless, doubting Thomas on this hand over here. The question is, is it possible that they worshipped and still were not sure? I think it's quite possible, and I think that's the story of many of us. Questions a lack of certainty does not prevent worship, does not prevent faith. Questions that you have going through your mind about issues of faith, a lack of certainty about your faith does not indicate an inferior faith. We find the disciples here on the mountain with Jesus. They worship, but not all are sure. 
They worship, and Jesus still commissions these wavering, unsure disciples who want so badly to believe. They see the resurrected Christ and still are having difficulty wrapping their minds around all that has taken place. Living in that tension of faith and uncertainty. When I reflect on this story, my mind was taken to the words of the 11th century theologian, man who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, a man named Anselm. He once said this as sort of a prayer to God. He said, let me find you by loving you. Let me find you by loving you. Let me love you when I find you. Let me find you by loving you. This seems to be backwards, but I think if we can make this shift in our minds, this is actually going to position us for a faith that will last the course of our lives. Let me find you by loving you. I think it is a love for Christ, sitting at the feet of Jesus, reflecting on the beauty of Christ and allowing that love to be nurtured. I think it is that position, that posture that positions us for faith. We find Christ not only through our intellectual ascent or by trying to find logical answers about our faith, although those endeavors are worthwhile. But I think primarily we find Jesus sitting at his feet, allowing a love for him to be nurtured. In his book, Simply Christian, N.T. Wright makes the, the argument that proving God's existence logically is sort of like shining a flashlight into the sky at the sun to prove the existence of the sun. I mean, think about that. That is an absurdity. A, a tiny flashlight to prove the existence of the source of all of our light. Similarly, it isn't logic that helps us find Christ, although that can be an aid. We find Christ, though, primarily by loving him. And I think it is the beauty of Christ as we sit at his feet. I think the beauty of Christ will do far more to carry us through seasons of doubt, seasons of questions, than attempting to find absolute answers or reach a place of absolute certitude. The beauty of Christ can be relied upon when our intellectual capacity fails us. I want to turn to something the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 3. We actually looked at this chapter from Romans a couple of times during our Lenten season, and if we back up to verse 3 of that chapter, we see Paul say, say this, what if some were unfaithful? Now he's speaking specifically about Israel. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What if some were unfaithful, Paul asks? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? 
Now that can also be read in this way as the NASB version puts it, what if some did not believe? Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And I think something that's going on beneath the surface of what Paul is arguing for here, it really is central to the gospel, and that is that our hope as followers of Jesus is not in our ability. Our hope as followers of Jesus, our salvation, is not in our capacity to believe strongly enough or develop categorical certainty about every question surrounding our faith. If that was the standard that we were trying to achieve, we would all fail. Our hope as followers of Jesus is not in our ability, either moral ability or cognitive ability. Our hope, our salvation is in the faithfulness of God. Now, I'm not one who finds doubt itself to be sacred or even necessary for mature faith to grow. In fact, I think we would all admit that seasons of doubt and uncertainty it can be quite uncomfortable. And often those seasons, if we don't approach them in a healthy way, they can, in the end, be detrimental to our faith. And too often, I think, seasons of doubt can often cause us to become cynical, to become jaded. They can lead to bitterness in our hearts. So I don't think doubt in and of itself is necessary or sacred, or maybe we would place too much confidence in our doubts, or ironically, we would have too much certainty about our doubts. As Dallas Willard suggested, it is important for followers of Jesus to routinely doubt our doubts, to routinely be skeptical about our own skepticism because we can't trust ourselves to be completely objective. Living in this place, that this tension between uncertainty and faith. Flannery O'Connor said, even in the life of a Christian, faith rises and falls like the tides of an invisible sea. Faith rises and falls like the tides of an invisible sea. I've seen that in my own life. Maybe you have as well. And it seems as though something similar is happening here in Matthew chapter 28, where we see worshipers and doubters in the same space. Worshipers and those with questions on the same mountain with Jesus, and maybe those two realities occurring in the same mind. Worship and uncertainty. One does not necessarily preclude the other. Theologian Stanley Harawas wrote this. I'm going to read through a lengthy paragraph. It was helpful for me, and it might be for you as well. But he said this, speaking of his own experience. He said, being a Christian has not and does not come naturally or easily for me, which is so interesting. It's a guy that has devoted his life to thinking about the things of God. Being a Christian has not and does not come naturally or easily for me. He goes on, I take that to be a good thing because I am sure that to be a Christian requires training that lasts a lifetime. I am more than ready to acknowledge that some may find that being a Christian comes more naturally, but 
that can present its own difficulties. Just as an athlete with natural gifts may fail to develop the fundamental skills necessary to play his or her sport after the talent fades, so people naturally disposed to faith may fail to develop the skills necessary to sustain them for a lifetime. What an analogy. It was quite helpful for me. I remember several years ago going and watching some of the Missouri high school football state championship games when they were played just down the street at Missouri State University. And one particular game featured a school that, was, that, that clearly possessed far superior natural talent on paper, but, but it, it was also clear even to an untrained eye like mine during warm-ups. You could see that one team, that they were bigger, they were stronger, they were faster. On paper, this team should have destroyed the team with smaller, slower, weaker players. And yet, as the game played out, quite surprisingly, the team with superior athletes seemed to rely on their natural talents, which had gotten them through the season to this championship game. And in the end, they lost the game to the more disciplined, although less athletic and smaller fundamentally sound team. And I think in a similar way, seasons of doubt, seasons where we lack that certainty that we so desire, it can often feel like a burden. Those questions, they, they can feel like a liability to our faith, like they are going to, in the end, destroy our faith. But I think it's possible for us to enter those doubt-filled seasons in such a way where they don't have to, in the end, destroy our faith, but rather can function as a crucible out of which a faithful tenacity is birthed, a tenacity that carries us through difficult seasons. Just as pain and failure and even trauma can help build resiliency for us personally. Seasons of uncertainty, if we don't just ignore them and brush them under the rug, and if we don't just feed them simple, logical answers, but if we approach them appropriately at the feet of Jesus and allow a love for Christ to be the thing that sustains us, in those seasons of uncertainty, I think those seasons can, in a paradoxical way, build our faith. So today in the story that John is telling us, we encounter disciples who see Jesus, they respond in worship, but some are still unsure. Living in that place of tension between faith and uncertainty, a place that maybe you find yourself today or maybe you will at some point in the future. And I just want to offer a couple of suggestions on living in that place of tension between faith and uncertainty. I mentioned Howard Wass a moment ago. Elsewhere, he said this. There's a danger in becoming so articulate that we might confuse thought and reflection with living well. And I think maybe we could add to that for our purposes this morning, that there is a danger in being so certain about everything that we confuse our faith or we confuse our ability to believe easily. We confuse that with living well. 
And that would be a tragic misstep. Tragic misstep to have all of the answers, but fail to develop a love for Jesus Christ. Again, please understand that I'm not elevating doubt as the goal of our spirituality. I don't think it is. I'm not saying that simple faith and simple belief are off base. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply hoping to encourage those who wrestle with doubt. I want to be honest, and we should be honest with one another, that that is the reality. A room this size, there are going to be those who struggle with doubt, who have uncertainty, who have all of these questions surrounding their faith rolling through their head. My, my first point of encouragement, you're not alone. You're not even alone in this room. You're not alone in the, the history of the Christian faith. We even see it with the early apostles in the gospel stories. They worship and they're still struggling to wrap their minds around the unbelievable. Number one, you're not alone. Number two, your doubts, your uncertainty, it doesn't have to be the end of your faith. It's often thought, I think, that doubt and faith can't coexist in the same space, and I don't think that's necessarily true. We find an example of it with the disciples of Jesus. On the mountain in Galilee, they worship, and yet some doubt. They worship, and yet not everybody was certain about everything that was taking place. Genuine worship and faith does not require certainty. Doubt is not a sign in and of itself of spiritual maturity. It's not a sign that we have become enlightened and, and we have reached the, the pinnacle of intellectual thought. But nor is it a sign in and of itself of a lack of faith or a lack of faithfulness. It's not a sign of an inferior spirituality or a spiritual immaturity. It can be approached in a way that is immature and detrimental to our faith. But I think it's possible that it could also develop a resiliency of faith that sustains us in the most difficult and trying of times. And that's our hope. That we can approach seasons of Questions and uncertainty at the feet of Jesus, becoming enthralled with the beauty of Christ, and that that might carry us through these difficult seasons of uncertainty. Our goal is not to believe strongly enough to save ourselves. Our hope and our salvation is not in our capacity or our ability to live holy enough or to believe strongly enough. Our hope and our salvation is in the faithfulness of God alone. Rowan Williams said this. He said, before we belonged to anything, before we did anything, before we achieved anything, even before we believed anything, God was loving us. This is our hope, the faithfulness of God, not our own ability to live morally enough or to believe strongly enough. We've heard, all heard of that proverbial leap of faith, and faith is a leap, and it's not a single leap. It is a consistent pattern of taking that leap 
I believe even when I can't wrap my mind around all of this, but Jesus, I'm going to position myself in a place where I can learn to love you and allow you to walk this path of uncertainty with me. It is a decision, a series of decisions we make over the course of our lives, and those decisions and those leaps of faith will not insulate us from questions or uncertainty. But I want to encourage you this morning that you can remain faithful. You can keep faith even in the midst of your doubt. Before you believed anything, God was loving you. And it is the faithfulness of God that we stake our hope in, not our own ability. Would you stand? Kevin, if you guys would come up. We are going to move into a time of celebration around the table of our Lord, sharing in this Eucharistic meal a clear sign of the faithfulness of God who has not abandoned us to our sin, but has put himself in a place of vulnerability to bring us out of darkness. We celebrate around this table this morning. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for the example of the apostles that we find in the gospel stories, even when those examples Maybe even especially when those examples are individuals who are not perfect but are struggling to live out their faith in the midst of uncertainty. And we find encouragement in these examples that we don't have to have it all figured out. That our lack of certainty does not preclude Faith does not even preclude belief. And so we posture ourselves at your feet, asking that in that position you would birth in us a love for you and that through that love we might come to know you. This is our desire, Jesus. Pray that you would meet with us in this meal, your body and your blood. Amen. We invite you forward for this celebration around the Lord's table. If you're new or visiting with us, we, we invite you to join us around the table of the Lord. We're going to make two lines down the center aisle. There will be somebody here to give you the elements. The words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the bread and the cup on your own and make your way back to your seats as a an invitation to the table this morning, I'd like to lead us through a prayer. O oh God, whose blessed Son made himself known to his disciples in the breaking of bread and on the mountain in Galilee, open the eyes of our faith, open the eyes of our faith, that we may behold him in the fullness of his redeeming work, who lives and reigns with you, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?